I, I, I struggle at the beginning here because there's no easy way to say this. Uh, but the passage today is all about the judgment of God. I know we don't like to speak about this, but without knowledge of it, without understanding its depths, without feeling the motivating call of the judgment of God to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, without listening and understanding more of its scale, more of its purpose, it will be to the detriment of our lives and the detriment of the lives of those around us. And historically, that is true. We've conceded in our country, during the Enlightenment period, with 1700s to mid-1800s, biblical truths were questioned on a level that is never known before in this country, and certainly in America too. Uh, long story short, we listened to those questions, and the Americans, still embracing scientific discovery, held fast to the gospel. Sadly, in the UK, uh, what happened in that period was the demise, really, of church. An increasing number of preachers felt undermined by the, the, the kind of scientific exploration of the time. And therefore, faith in God as a kind of creator, specifically also a judge, was considered incompatible with this, as it was called, the age of reason. In America... It was always still held out by the great universities there as complementary to. As a result, we now live in a society that is deemed as post-Christian. Now, we enjoy some of the benefits of a Christian heritage, but let's be honest, it won't last long. In America, 80% of the population consider themselves Christian. Yes, I understand that's an incredibly broad and nuanced kind of statistic. But 40% still go to a Christian church of some form. Again, very, very broad. In the UK, last census, 24% consider themselves Christian. And less than 4% attend church regularly. You take, go that to London, it's less than 2%. The judgment of God was ignored in this country. It was never spoken about. And you've only got to look at the effect in 200 years. It has transformed a culture. What about us as individuals? Now, if we are mute about the reality of God's judgment, does that bring into question whether we actually believe it ourselves? And we may love the fact that Christ is our saviour, but what has he saved us from? And, you know, as he died on the cross... What was that for, if not to save us from his just judgment? See, if our friends don't know, if this country is ignorant of the horrifying depths of God's judgment to come, you've got to ask who's to blame. The knowledge of God's judgment is precious. Look, let me just be honest with you. It's not pleasant, is it? But it's something we should never let go of, however painful holding on to it becomes. We must understand, however, that the judgment of God is is good news to the believer. For it marks the time when justice will finally come. 
So many followers, as I've said over the last couple of weeks, are oppressed around the world. So many suffer still today. It was really encouraging. I don't know if you saw on the BBC just this last week, finally a report from the Foreign Secretary speaking out at last on it. He said that the Christian persecution was near genocidal levels. How true he was and how late he was in saying that. I have to say, but what about you? If you don't suffer, if you, if you have to ask, are you really obeying God's word? Uh, well, no, if you don't suffer, you really have to ask the kind of questions. Are you really obeying God's word in making Christ known to the ends of the earth? You see, to the believer, the judgment of God is, is hope. It's hope in times, uh, in dark times for the oppressed people of God. It is good news because justice is coming. One of our boys uh, is fascinated about war history. And we were watching the other day a documentary about the Battle of Britain in World War II. Particularly the bombings of London and then the reciprocal bombings of Berlin and Dresden and other um, uh, German town, uh, cities. Now I don't want to be naive and I recognise the terrible failings of the strategy of indiscriminate killing and bombing in German cities. But how do you think the residents of London felt as they heard squadrons of Lancaster bombers flying overhead with payloads of bombs to drop on German residents and cities and industry? They knew that the bombs would kill and harm. But do you know what the residents of London did? They cheered. They cheered. Because they knew it might bring an end to the Nazi regime. No doubt there were feelings of distress. But British bombers flying to Germany was still good news for the residents of London in the Blitz. Because it meant they may be liberated from the bombing. And these bombers flying overhead were a symbol of justice and liberation of the faithful. I know this is uncomfortable. Yeah, I feel it too. My point is this, that the judgment of God is good news. If there's no just judgment of God, then the people of God, we have no hope. Judgment brings hope, you see, to the oppressed believer. Now, I know we may struggle in our comfortable surroundings to see this, but place your easy life in the context of a Christian in Syria right now, or in Egypt, in Somalia. You see, the judgment of God is good news. It brings hope. And this is the central theme of our passage today, the judgment of God. Uh, let's just examine how this, uh, that is worked out as God speaks to Habakkuk. Uh, and what is the second response uh, in, this, uh, in, our, in our book today? Think back to what has come before. Habakkuk speaks on behalf of the, uh, the people Judah, God's people. And he cries out to God, right at the back of the beginning of chapter 1, How long? Why? Uh, because within Judah itself, the people of God are suffering violence and injustice. And what does God do? He responds, but in the most surprising of ways. He's going to send the Babylonians. 
And so Habakkuk then questions God, doesn't he? He reasons with God that how can God judge, uh, you know, the nation, God's people, using a less righteous people, a pagan people, a violent, horrible people like Babylon? There's confusion in Habakkuk. And God responds, second response, chapter 2, verse 2 through to verse 20. And it's important, so important there to write it down, it says in verse 2. Uh, God knows, you see, the arrogance of Babylon. They're puffed up, we see in verse 4. And so he assures the people, God's his own people, of life through faith in his promises. That very famous verse quoted in Hebrews. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness, verse 4. But now in our passage today, this is key. Understand what's going on. God is providing the words for his faithful people to use in the meantime. As they suffer at the hands of Babylon. Now these verses are God's words for the future survivors to speak to the puffed up Babylonians. Because of course, many of many of God's people were killed and exiled to Babylon. These are the words that God has given for the the remnant, those who are left, to speak back to puffed up Babylon. These words are are kind of charges, they're allegations, recalling what they will do and what they are like. But the most shocking thing of all, and recognise they're God's words, these words are taunts. The victim Judah, God's people, will turn on Babylon, who will know shame and disgrace. And these taunts come. Look down in your passage, verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 12, 15 and 19. They begin, woe to him, him being Babylon. Verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, verse 19. Woe to him. Look at the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. To understand the nature of these woes. Babylon there is pictured. It is, is as greedy as the grave. And like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations. And takes captive all the peoples. And look what happens as a result in verse 6. Will not all of them taunt him. That is Babylon. With ridicule and scorn. Saying woe to him. I hope you're as uncomfortable as I am. This is so uncomfortable as a theme, but the style it's also presented in is equally hard to digest. Oh yes, you know, Babylon, they're greedy and they're never satisfied, but ridicule, taunting, scorn, will not all of them, all peoples, all nations, taunt. Babylon here acts as a proverbial lesson to all who overstep God's bounds. Those who do not put their trust in his promises face this judgment. At the point of hearing this, though, remember that Judah was still to face the violence of Babylon coming in in God's justice. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. You'll see Habakkuk literally there. He's on the ramparts of the city. He's looking. What's he looking for? He's looking out on the horizon. What for? Dust. Because dust was the first sign that a nation was coming. He's waiting for Babylon to come and sack, to destroy God's people. 
And so these taunts and these ridicules of of verse 6 to 20 are are therefore kind of prophetic. They're looking forward to speak about what is to come. They give hope to God's faithful people that transform them from being victims without hope to being survivors with hope. And you know this is true. Because when people are oppressed, sometimes the only thing that they have left to cope with the situation that they feel that they're in and they know that they're in is humour and satire and sarcasm against their oppressors. And that is exactly what God is providing for his people here. This is just like an episode of Mock the Week. This is private eye for God's people as Babylon are about to come. This is a piece of ridicule. The righteous of Judah will be crushed by Babylon. And this is a script of prophetic ridicule toward Babylon for God's people. Well, that is the theme and the style, the form of the passage. But the content of the passage is God's announcement of judgment on Babylon. And as I've titled this talk, it's the judgment the righteous wait for. Let's look at the five woes, though. That's how we're going to structure it. There's actually four points I've got down there, but uh, there are five woes. Let's run through them. So we might know how to respond appropriately. Let's firstly look at the justice of God's judgment. Verses six. Let me just read that to you again. Woe to him, Babylon, that is, who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Do you see that? That there's justice. And we understand the principle of clear and exact justice, don't we? We see it on a small scale around us all the time with the police and the judicial system. There is retribution in God's judgment. It is retributive, retributive justice. You do something to someone, you receive a punishment, a justice back as proper retribution. I don't think we have any qualms about understanding that. We want it, we long for it in our society. It's a right and appropriate thing. On a smaller scale, you can think back to the end of the World War II. Um, The Nuremberg trials, you know, Goering, von Ribbentrop, all the Nazi warlords as they were brought there, received justice that fitted their crimes. And they were all hung. Verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you. Retributive justice. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Don't think that this kind of Retributive justice is isolated, though, to the Old Testament, because that's what some people often think, don't they? You might turn to 2 Thessalonians 1, for example, verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen, yes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. But listen, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Retributive justice. God is a just judge. And that is good news for Christ's suffering people. Old Testament, New Testament. And it's the same for God's faithful people today. 
Of course, final deliverance from sufferings of this world will only be known when Christ comes in glory, in his second coming to judge. But here in Habakkuk, God's faithful people would observe God's judgment, his retributive justice on the wicked nation of Babylon. And do understand what this is. This is a vivid picture of the judgment to come. You see, divine retribution is not some kind of impersonal principle of the universe. It is exact and it is fair from a creator God to those who would ignore him. I say this often, whether that's in cool indifference, so popular in our culture, or through hostile rebellion, as we see here in Babylon. I wonder, who do you need to warn Who do you need to warn of God's just judgment to come? It is coming and it will be just. So first point, justice of uh, God's judgment. Let's look at, secondly, the futility of God's judgment. Verses 9 through to verse 14. See, part of God's judgment throughout history is to bring frustration to all human efforts that seek to dominate this earth and the peoples of this earth. Look at Babylon again in verse 9 and 10. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. Babylon, we know, and it succeeded to a degree, was at this point establishing itself as a massive superpower. And so it was brokering deals to extort natural resources from poverty-stricken countries of Africa. No, actually, sorry, that's just today. No, Babylon was (laughs) plotting and ruining, dominating nations to um, to um, to establish itself and escape its enemies. Babylon... Uh, think they escape. They are arrogant as anything, history shows us. But verse 11, the stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. The point is you'll be found out, Babylon. History will expose you. The domination of people and land, they can't hide it. Uh, this makes me think of many people uh, down through the ages, doesn't it? You think of uh, you know, Slobodan Milosevic, uh, the former president of Serbia and Yugoslavia. Do you remember his trial for the war crimes in Srebrenica against the Bosnian people? The mass graves. They just plundered a nation and threw them in, cried out. They could just open them up. The point is you'll be found out. I think the point here is you know, beware power-hungry leaders of today. You see, there's a frustration in God's judgment. He won't allow the wicked to fully and finally get away with it. Now, of course, you know, sometimes they seem to, don't they? But the point here is that a certain frustration or futility is built into the way that God operates in his world. Verse 12 and 13. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has the Lord, or has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? 
You see, Babylon was so, so powerful. Other wicked people and nations may be powerful now, but, but God builds into grasps of power a frustration, a futility. They will exhaust themselves in the end. And history shows us that is true. This is part of God's judgment. We see that in the temporal here, but in eternity. That is all the more stark. What does the billions of an extorting Russian oligarch do for him before God at judgment? What will Bashir al-Hazad gain before God? There is a futility and frustration in God's judgment. This was clear in the covenant curses poured out on Israel in Deuteronomy 28. Have a look at that later or you can write it down or have a look now. If you're like Deuteronomy 28, God warns through Moses, if you disobey, do you remember? If you obey this, if you disobey this, blessings, if you obey, curses, if you don't. Deuteronomy 28, verse 30, you will pledge to be married to a woman, but another will take her and ravish her. You'll build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will eat none of it. There is a futility and a frustration in God's judgment. And do you know how that section in Deuteronomy 28 finishes? It's haunting. The sights you will see will drive you mad. When God frustrates you see in his judgment, you don't get to find the fulfillment that you would normally expect. Ignore God and his wisdom regarding anything and there will be untold frustration in your life, in relationships, in money, in decision making. The sights you will see will drive you mad. And why does God do this? Look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is why all nations and people in this world that oppress and seek power will end up as nothing. They will be fuel for the fire as we've just seen. Why? Because God has already determined how history will work out. All history will end up either in his kingdom or burnt fuel for the fire. The earth will be filled, yes, Not with Babylonians and their glory, or Great Britain and their empire glory, whatever, but the glory of the Lord. And it's the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that will fill the earth. That is, people who acknowledge him as king. And that is where everything is heading. So kick all you want against that. And you will only know frustration and futility. Rather, why not embrace the reality that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God and obediently live with that joyful purpose and not under the futility of God's judgment. Third point, the fearfulness of God's judgment. This is an extension, if you like, of the first woe in that God's judgment is just, but here extends to show there is also terror in God's judgment. The Babylonians go to the British Museum, you can see that they were just known for their sadistic cruelty that they inflicted on others. And here we see it comes back to bite them. 
There is justice in the retribution, but there's also a frightening terror to it. Verse 15 and 16 are pretty nasty, aren't they? I guess they'd be rated 18 if a film were made. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they're drunk, so they can gaze on their naked bodies. Babylonians were cruel. They make their enemy drunk so they can laugh at them in their nudity, which in that culture was just the most extremely shameful thing that could ever happen. This is not a stagnite that's gone a little bit too far. This is so much worse. This is kind of systematic, cruel humiliation of a people. Verse 15, so he can gaze on their naked bodies, can be translated, they make them drunk to force sexual indecency on them, even crimes. We don't translate it like that to be careful. Babylonians were cruel. They demean people. And I'm really sorry to say, but modern history shows us that we have not changed whether you look at Stalin's gulags or Japanese prisoner of war camps in World War II, again and again, we see that with seemingly ultimate power, humanity can easily stoop to such levels and people love it. But a day will come for Babylon. Verse 16 and 17. You, Babylon, will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace. Literally, their vomit will cover your glory. The cup of God's judgment is coming. You know, you will get back what you have given you, sadistic superpower, God is saying. There is fearfulness in God's judgment. And don't think this is so removed from us today. Christians and brothers and sisters today are being tortured and humiliated for fun right now. It is not long ago, and I met this man, Richard Vernbrand was a minister, a pastor in Romania. He wrote this of his Romanian prison stay. A wave of madness swept the prison. Tuberculosis patients were stripped, laid on stone floors and drenched with buckets of freezing cold water. Pig's swill was thrown on the ground before men who had been starved for days. Their hands were tied behind them and they were forced to lick it up with their mouths. No humiliation, however vile, was spared. Those who clung to their faith in Christ were worst treated. Christians were tied for four days to crosses. Every day the crosses were placed on the floor and the other prisoners were ordered to defecate on faces and bodies of the crucified. After this, the crosses were stood up again. Soon to be part of the European Union. Less than a generation ago. That sort of sadistic delight in creative, cruel humiliation is exactly what we see in nations, but also in individuals. French-Canadian air steward called Dugas in 1984 was working in the United States. He's commonly known as Patient Zero. Why? Because he was the initial carrier of the HIV virus in that continent. Even after doctors had diagnosed him, he slept with hundreds of men and afterwards with delight in telling them, I've got gay cancer and so have you now. 
God seems to be saying here that if you humiliate and inflict such cruelty on another, then it will come back to bite you. And it's not just the justice, it's the terror. It's the fearfulness of that justice. And, and this, is this so far removed that it seems irrelevant? Am I just sort of you know, giving you these illustrations and you're going, kind of oh, that's just so distant and abstract, it's never us. This point there, the point is it could happen to you. You are so capable, as am I. I remember at school there was a boy that really, really annoyed me. I really, really did not like him at all. But I was clever. I used to put drawing pins on his chair. He used to sit down and he would quickly spring up in pain as a pin pierced his trousers and the skin of his bottom. I didn't wince, I loved it. I laughed at him as did many, because he was annoying. I guess in some ways we're all susceptible, because the problem is our hearts. Now we may not be Babylonian, but this can characterise any of us. Babylon can be in all of us, because we love to control and to dominate, holding others in misery. It is a heart problem. And so what can we do? Well, we cry out to God in repentance. We ask him to have a new heart full of the Spirit of God because you do not want to face the fearfulness of God's judgment in this. Lastly and briefly, the protection from God's judgment. Last three verses. Babylon this said. Superpower surely is some line of defence against the judgment of God. After all, look at them. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, they deride and scoff at rulers. No. Before God, their weapons are useless. Hence the mocking of their charms and carved gods in verses 18 and 19. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that, te- that teaches lies? Uh, teaches lies. For the one who makes it trusts his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says, would come to life or to life a stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. You see, Babylon, they might have their things, their religion, their magic, but will they work? No. It's foolish, says Habakkuk. But it's also wicked because it's idolatry. But lastly, it's tragic because it's just got no breath in it at all. And the point here is that it's being exposed that man-made religion cannot protect from God's judgment. Look at verse 20. It's coming. The Lord is in his holy temple. And let let all the earth be silent before him. There is no protection from the judgment of the living God in man-made religion. So where, where, where's the hope in this passage? Anywhere. Well, that wasn't Habakkuk's role. Now, his role was to warn of judgment. If any hope is to be found, it can only be found from the judge himself. And there's a glimmer. I know it's been hard, but did you see the glimmer? Look back in verse 16. God's judgment is pictured as a cup. In the right hand of God, 
And the cup and the wine in the cup is the wrath of God that is to be poured out. It is the right and the just judgment against sin and the world. And do you see it? Do you see the small hint of of, of protection from God's judgment here? Do you remember the one who prayed in Mark 14, verse 36? Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take what? This cup. Take this cup from me. Yet not I what I will, but what you will. The cup that Jesus drank uh, was not just the judgment of physical suffering, even of death. This was the cup of God's wrath. All his weight of judgment against the sin of the world. The cup of God's anger, which Jesus rightly pleaded, take it from me. Such was his pain and burden. Oh yeah, we don't see Jesus drink the cup, it's a metaphor, but we hear it in Mark 15 verse 34. Where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and as you look at the base of the cross of Christ there's there's an empty cup there. It's empty because Jesus drank it for you and for me and it is the only protection that we can know from the justice of God's judgment. It is available through faith for the righteous person will live by his faithfulness we see back in chapter 2 verse 4. And if that is you, if you are one who has put your faith in Jesus, rest in him now. And be silent before him. As it says in verse 20, and be in awe of the one who has saved you. Let's thank him, shall we, in prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we look at these terrifying verses, they are what we deserve And yet we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who has taken all of this on himself. He drank the cup on the cross, the cup of all your justice and judgment that should be on us. And so if we stand here today and we are Christians, if we put our faith in his life, death and resurrection, all we can do is is be silent in awe. Just huge gratitude for your son, the Lord Jesus. May we not leave it there, though. Might we live in response, knowing the joy, not of, uh, of living in obedience to you, not, not the frustration of kicking against you day by day. May we know the joy of your salvation, I pray. Amen. Amen.